You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Somebody knows something and they haven't come forward. They have to talk to a police officer. They have to call us. They don't want to identify themselves. They have to call Crime Stoppers. That's Nanaimo police spokesperson Gary O'Brien. He's being interviewed by Czech TV at one of the annual marches for justice for Lisa. When I began working on this story, I wanted to focus on Lisa to add depth and context to the news stories I'd read over the years. I thought I'd interview family and friends and then speak with the police so they could lay out the facts of the case and update the investigation. But that's not what happened. Early on, I have several polite, even friendly conversations with the local spokesperson for the area, the guy you heard off the top, Gary O'Brien, and with Corporal Marcus Muntner from the Serious Crimes Unit. I'm told Lisa's case remains an active investigation. Constable O'Brien says at one point, there's no strategic advantage in speaking to me about the case. He reminds me this isn't the United States where officers are far more willing to speak openly about cases. This is the RCMP, and that's not how they conduct business. To be clear, my interactions with them have been nothing but courteous and professional. At one point, Constable O'Brien even makes suggestions of people he thinks I should speak with. I learned from another source, Constable O'Brien knew Lisa. He met her while she was in foster care. Lisa's family and the community have endured almost two decades of rumors. Some of them could be dispelled if the police would provide a few answers. And I believe after so much time, it's also fair to ask some questions about the investigation itself. I'm Laura Palmer. This is season one of Island Crime. Where is Lisa? This is episode four, Bambi. As years pass, stories about Lisa and the local news become fewer. In episode three, reporter Kendall Hansen recalled Lisa's mom, Joanne, ringing to ask for coverage. Joanne is not keen on speaking with the media. But there's the chance keeping Lisa's story in the public eye could someday bring her daughter home. But with no new news hooks, no one to interview, the stories begin to fade from the headlines. I can't imagine what that time must be like for families. The rest of the world moves on. But you don't. You can't. Everywhere you turn, you're reminded of the daughter who is still out there, somewhere. Joanne and Dawn paper the community with posters of Lisa. Her beautiful face is literally staring at them from every store window, every telephone pole. I'm told that one of Lisa's young brothers will decide to leave town for this reason. And the tragedy takes its toll on Joanne. She struggles. Her health deteriorates. Everyone I speak with believes Joanne's early death at 54 from kidney failure is linked to the trauma and grief of losing Lisa. But despite all of this, she is determined and creative in her resolve to find her daughter. When I speak with Don, he mentions a psychic who Joanne turned to for help. My name is Norm Pratt, and uh, for the last 20 years or so, I've 
been using my intuitive ability to assist families and police in looking for missing people. Um, and I use that ability in various other aspects of my life as well. Um, but that's probably how I'm uh, maybe best known in the province for uh, assisting police. Can you tell me when you realized you had this ability? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to being a kid, really, and not using words intuitive or, you know, knowing what that is, really, but uh, sometimes knowing that things were going to happen before they did, um, which could be really simple, like, you know, going to the post office and knowing who was going to be there or something that was going to happen that day or, or when the phone would ring. And a lot of people have that experience. You know, the phone rings, and right before it rings, you know who it is, or it rings, and suddenly it triggers something within you that you know who it is. And you don't think much of it because it's almost uh, an everyday occurrence or, you know, kind of a usual thing. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of people really discount their intuitive ability, and so it never really develops. And with me, I started to notice that, that you know, that things were happening that I couldn't quite explain, but I seemed to have an awareness of them coming. And then they would happen, and I sort of trusted that. And the more I trusted it, the more it seemed to happen. And later in life, I learned that, you know, it's like a muscle. The more you flex it and, and work with it, the, the more it grows. And Norm, at what point did you decide you were going to do something with this ability to perhaps help people and help police? I was living in Banff, and um, a grown adult, you know, married with two small children, two boys, and at that time, a young boy on Vancouver Island went missing. His name was Michael Donahue. It's pretty well known in Canada about a case. I think it was sort of the first case of its kind in a way that sort of woke us up, maybe the, the national consciousness that, holy cow, uh, kids can go missing and get abducted or, or taken or whatever. You know, every night on television, his parents would be getting interviewed by journalists and um, or the police and begging for information, really, and not much was known. I mean, my heart really went out to them, like everybody's. And I started to kind of wonder if maybe the intuitive ability wouldn't serve in something like this, where there didn't seem to be any any information available re readily. You know, no witnesses. They didn't know what had happened. Uh, and I thought, maybe this is the sort of thing where intuitive ability could come into play. And while I, I didn't work on that case at that time, because I hadn't developed my ability, I started thinking about it more and more. And, and that seemed to open a door. and things started to happen where I just started, you know, I practiced meditation at the time and I practiced yoga. And some of that was just for my own general well-being and growth. But in knowing that, I really started to kind of clear up my mind and clear out my agenda of, you know, what I wanted and stuff like that. And just things would start to float into my consciousness and an awareness of things beyond sort of what was physically present or known or obvious. So I would say at that point, I started developing my intuitive ability and, you know, finally got to a place where I was ready to kind of offer my services. Tell me about the first time that you did get involved with uh, trying to help someone. The first time was actually local to where I was living, which was near Nelson, B.C. And I didn't know about it at the time, um, but a 22-year-old girl had gone missing. We say gone missing, and what does that mean? I mean, she just disappeared off the face of the earth, and nobody knew where she was. And a friend of mine called um, that knew that I had intuitive ability and said, you know, 
maybe you could work on this. Maybe you could really start using your ability to help, and, and here's an opportunity. And I was kind of nervous about it because I hadn't done it yet. And I thought, well, I'll start with just doing some meditation. So we lived on a rural property acreage, and I went for a walk in the woods and asked for information and just sort of cleared my mind. And <clears throat> different insights, I guess, or impressions started to float in. And I decided to call the police, which was a big stretch for me because I'd never done that before. I didn't want to be perceived as a flaky psychic or somebody looking for attention or out there to take advantage of anybody or be anything. So I was quite hesitant about it. And I've always been really private, really, about my ability. But it was sort of one of those neat circumstances where I picked up the phone to phone the police. And... The phone line was already live, and on the other side was a detective sergeant of the Nelson City Police who had just picked up the phone on his end to try to contact somebody like me. It was kind of an amazing way to start off, and he and I ended up working very closely together, and um, over time, we found her. So tell me about that. How, how did that happen? One of the things that happened when I was meditating was I had a vision. And a vision is just like, it's almost like a dream, except you're not asleep. You're, you're awake, you're cognizant that you're having it, you're able to kind of look at it and question it and, and even go deeper with it in some ways. But I had a vision that I was flying in a helicopter over Nelson, and I knew, you know, I could recognize the area from the air that I was flying and stuff. So I told the uh, detective sergeant about that, and he said, well, you want to go up? And I said, sure. So I think that very first day he brought me in, and we went up in a helicopter, and just us and the pilot. <laughs> and I think the pilot was a little taken aback that we were flying around, you know, with an intuitive trying to figure out where this girl might be. Uh, and Nelson is um, a really pretty area, kind of on the side of a, a mountain, um, in a very mountainous area. But for me, it just felt like she had really decided to take her own life and had uh, gone up into the forest above and behind Nelson and um, and done that. And so I had this vision of flying in a helicopter and seeing her. So I thought, okay, well, let's reenact the vision as best we can. So we went up in the helicopter and took some orange flagging tape with us. And when we were flying over a certain area, I... Again, it's a little hard to explain, but again, I had a vision while we were flying, and I could see her down below, and she was naked, and she was jumping up and down, waving at the helicopter. So I said, let's just throw the flagging tape out the window, and we'll try to find this place, because it was pretty remote. So we touched down, and the police officer and I went for a hike through the woods, which was quite a tramp. There was still snow, and I think at one point we were up to almost our thighs in snow, which was really more than we kind of banked on that first day. But later on, it played out that I ended up finding her, and she was within probably 50 feet of where we flew that flag and tape the first day. So I'm guessing there are people listening right now thinking, this is nuts. I have my first conversation with Norm while I'm out walking in the woods with my dog. I do a lot of my thinking and planning for the podcast out on the trails. I'm not a spiritual person, but this moss-covered path through old-growth forest is kind of a sacred place for me. My mother's side of my family is Irish, and I have close relations who believe in angels and healing through crystals and vibrations and the like. But I've been a working journalist for more than a quarter of a century, 
and my skepticism is deeply ingrained. I will admit that my eyes rolled when I first heard about the involvement of a psychic. So yes, my first instinct is suspicion. But before you listen to how Norm was involved in Lisa Marie's case, consider this. Norm didn't seek out Don and Joanne. Joanne contacted him. When I first contact Norm through his website, it takes a while for him to get back to me. And when we do have that first talk on the trail, he tells me he will only agree to speak on the record if the family says it's okay. He's not anxious for the limelight. After getting those assurances from family members that they are open to Norm speaking with me, Norm shares a detailed memory of his time looking for Lisa. Uh, as best as I can recall, uh, Lisa's mom, Joanne, contacted me uh, within a few months or maybe a year of me finding that first girl. So Joanne contacted me about coming to the island and taking a look for uh, Lisa Marie. And at that point, I think she'd been missing for a couple of years. And so I, you know, I always sit with, with things first and just see, do I feel like I'm going to be of service? You know, is there any energy around this? And am I getting any sort of information or impressions? And uh, in Lisa's case, yeah, there started to be definitely a flow of information, including from Lisa herself. And one of the things I do pretty early on when I'm talking to family members, the closest family members, is... I listen to them pretty closely and I wait to see where are they with this? Do they feel like their missing person is alive or not? And, you know, you can usually tell pretty quickly if somebody's talking in the present tense or the past tense about their loved one. And so in Joanne's case, she was really open to hearing whatever I had to say. They certainly, after two years, entertained every sort of possible outcome and they were well aware that, that Lisa Marie could have passed in that time or something could have happened to her. They felt very strongly that if she was alive, that she would get in touch. But even at that time, they were still having tips that she was, you know, sighted here and sighted there, like in Alberta or New Brunswick or, you know, all over the place. But they always had the hope that she was going to show up. And, and I learned early, too, that for me, part of my makeup, I guess, was to always have that sense of hope as well, even sometimes when I knew that that person had passed because of the visions I had or because they were you know, communicating with me from a place of spirit that I always had the hope they'd walk in the door too. It just felt real to me. It felt like we always have to kind of keep that alive and, and I could be wrong. So, you know, I'm always going to keep that hope too, that, that they could uh, come home and, and be okay. I don't know. I started realizing that I wanted to bring those people home. And if we couldn't bring them home physically, that maybe somehow we could bring them home spiritually. And so I would share with the families as best I could what I was feeling, the visions that I had, what kind of information was coming through, whether it was in a dream or just a sense of things or, um, you know, however it came or if that person was actually speaking with me, I would share what, what I felt was being said. And then we would work with that to try to find them. So that's kind of how it started with, uh, with Lisa Marie's case. So with that first conversation, you mentioned there was, a, you know, a, like a flow of information that was starting. Can you describe what that was like? Pretty much whenever I talk to a family member, especially in the case of a mom with a missing child, you know, I'm feeling the love of the mom for the, for the child. Often I start feeling the same thing on the other end. I start feeling the love 
of the child from the mom, regardless of age, stage, time, or when it happened or what happened. And when that happens, it opens the door to kind of a deeper sense of intuition. Uh, and I start to know if that person is still, you know, physically alive or if they passed into spirit. And in Lisa Marie's case, I guess I knew that immediately. As soon as I started talking to her mom, I, I could just sense that Lisa Marie was in in spirit. And, and after we talked for a while and started to get comfortable and she started to get comfortable with me and she was very open and really, you know, wanted me to assist. Um, I would have shared with her at that point that I felt like Lisa Marie was in spirit and that this wouldn't be about bringing her home alive, but you know, maybe with, with any luck that we would be able to find her body, at least or her remains and, and maybe find out what had happened as well. Cause they, at that point they, they really didn't have any idea. What is the process like for the family to begin working with you at that point? I usually ask them to contact the police that they're working with to notify them that they've contacted me, see if the police are open to working with me, um, which doesn't always mean them sharing information with me as much as being willing to uh, listen to what I have to say and be able to act on any kind of tips I might give them. And you know, hopefully actually work together. Like if I want to revisit, okay, well, where was she last seen? Where did she live? Where were her friends? You know, what's known? Um, I always want to work, you know, start off with, well, what's known? As best we know it, what is known? What are the facts? There's no point in me trying to intuit all that if it's already right there. Um, you know, my time is better spent starting to intuit what isn't known, or at least what isn't readily known. Um, so I try to gather as much facts as I can by talking to uh, friends and family, talking to the police. Uh, more often than not, the police are quite open to working together, um, mostly because, I guess, of the credibility I've established over the years. And then from there, I'm also you know, practicing meditation, going for walks, just being really open and aware in general and noticing uh, what I'm feeling or what's coming through or uh, in some cases, connecting with the person, if the if, you know, missing person has passed and they connect with me, then I'm starting to um, also record any kind of information I'm getting that way. And sometimes it's very, very subtle. Like, I mean, it's not as simple as the kind of conversation you and I are having right now. It's me sort of asking or, I guess, praying for information and opening myself for that to happen and seeing how it comes and trying not to interpret it too much and just record what am I getting and what am I feeling and what does this feel like? And, you know, in Lisa Marie's case, pretty early on, I had a pretty strong feeling of what had happened with her, uh, somewhat graphic as well, um, seeing what happened to her. And then from there, I was trying to find her. So did you, did you end up talking to the police down here? Yeah, I, I ended up coming there, uh, I think, for just a few days. Yeah, the first time I came there, it was sort of a whirlwind tour, and I was working on about four different cases at the same time, a couple on the island. And I think I put in about maybe two or three days with Lisa Marie's family and the police that were, I think it was RCMP, responsible for that file at the time. Um and ended up kind of pinpointing an area for a search, actually, and going out and doing a search for her with a um, First Nations search and rescue team and some of the members of her family. 
what uh, like I've never been out on a search before. What what happens? Well, in this case, it was instigated by me. Uh, I felt like I was getting enough information. Um, when I got there, I think what I did was I just went for a drive. And I go for a drive around the area and just, because really not much was known. There had been a couple of last sightings. Uh, if, I'm, if memory serves, I think Lisa had made a call from her cell phone the evening that she went missing from a particular location. And she was with a guy at that point and she phoned a friend and said, you know, I kind of want to get away from this guy. He's a creep or something like that. I don't think there was a lot more to it. I think I went with her father, Don, and we went for a drive around. And he showed me where, you know, where the house was that she had made that phone call from, where else, you know, they attract her, you know, the police attract her movements that night for where she'd been or where, you know, at least what they knew. And as we drove around and looked, um, I started to hit on a search area or a potential search area. And for me, it just, I don't know, I just started seeing flags. It's hard to describe how it happens, but I, we were driving on a road called Rutherford Road near Nanaimo, and I just started to feel like, I think she's in here. I could just feel her pulling me into the woods, and it was a fairly heavily wooded area. So I just really paid attention to where the feelings felt strongest for going into that area, and then in talking with Dawn and Joanne, her parents, um, talked about what the best way to proceed was, and we decided they wanted very much to be involved themselves, and they wanted very much to involve their First Nations uh, search and rescue team. So that's what we did. So Lisa Marie's grandfather, Moses, uh, who was the chief of the uh, that First Nations community at that time, arranged for the search and rescue team to come. I think we had about a dozen of us, and we went out the next day and did a search. So we were out in a fairly heavily wooded area. We weren't really doing a grid search because, you know, we weren't sure what we were going to find. We were just sort of doing a general search. People were out walking. We were taking different areas, and we're just looking for anything that, that doesn't fit the landscape. <clears throat> but I know my energy was running really high that day, and I felt like we were going to find something, and she was basically saying to me that we were going to find her. So I didn't share that with them, but I was really hopeful that we were going to find her and, and, you know, get some kind of closure for this family. And the first thing I think I found was a bag, and it had all kinds of ID, different IDs in there, and a lot of female ID, and that really <laughs> sent up a signal for me that, uh-oh, you know, what's going on? Um, and then a little further along, I just, just sort of, I think I was scraping at some ground cover for some reason. I just do whatever comes naturally, and I found myself sort of scraping away the, the ground cover on the ground and, and started finding some bones. So I called in a few of the uh, search and rescue members, and we started kind of being pretty carefully scraping away some of the ground cover and finding more bones. And even though some of these guys were hunters, nobody could identify for sure what it was. And on the one hand, I mean, I'm being pretty honest here, and I can't remember if I ever really shared this with her family, but on the one hand, I was feeling Lisa Marie saying, this is me, this is me, and being really excited. And on the other hand, my rational mind was saying, I don't know about that. It feels to me like this is a deer. It looks it looks deer to me. Um, but we weren't able to tell. And often it's pretty hard to tell out in the field when you're just looking at a few bones what they are. Um, so being a First Nations community, we all sort of gathered together and decided 
to do a little bit of, um, I guess, do a little bit of a ceremony. And everybody felt strongly enough that there was the possibility that it could be her. And, uh, you know, Lisa Marie's mom was there, Joanne, and her grandfather, Moses, was there, and several members of the search and rescue team and myself. And uh, I had some sweetgrass with me, and we burned some sweetgrass, and we just did a little uh, prayer and sang a song and just in honor of the, you know, whatever this is, we're honoring Lisa Marie no matter what. And so we did a ceremony and it was actually a pretty emotional, pretty intense ceremony for all of us. After that, we, we Moses and I talked about it and we decided we would leave everything as is, that I would come, come back into town and get the police and we would go back and we would take a look at it. And go that next step. We're seeing what is this? You know, is it is it an animal? Is it person? What is it? And um, that's what I did. I came back out with the head of the uh, the head of that file, which would have been an RCMP sergeant, and we bagged up some of those remains, uh, and they took them back to the office to send a forensic anthropologist at UBC to determine first of all, are they human or animal? Uh, meanwhile, I was still feeling Lisa Marie saying, this is me. And, uh, and I explained to the family, I said, you know, I wish I was clear. I wish I could tell you one way or the other. Uh, there's things out here that really indicate this is a possibility for where we are with the area and how I was guided to bring us here and, and what we have found here. At the same time, this could be, these could be deer remains. And, uh, there weren't any clothes or anything, so there was nothing as obvious as that, and there was no skull or you know anything that would be that obvious. So I think within about two or three days, they got back to me, and they said they are deer bones. And they said, actually, for a really young deer, you know, and, and they said it is really hard to tell. It's, you know, with a, with a small deer, the femur and leg bones are very similar to human bones. Lisa still said it was her. So I didn't understand that, and I, I couldn't understand why she would take me there and take us through that exercise, only for it to end up being deer remains. So I made a phone call to Joanne, which was a really hard phone call to want to make, to Lisa Marie's mom. Um, and she took the news really, really well. She said, Norm, she said, it's totally okay for us we feel like that may have been the only experience that we're ever really going to have of finding Lisa. So for us, it was just like we found her and it's made all the difference. And, um, that helped me. And then I still felt Lisa saying that it was her. And I didn't understand that. And I said, did you, you know, did you have any kind of nickname for Lisa Marie growing up, like Little Deer or something along that line that would make sense, that would be in line with this? And she got pretty upset and she said, absolutely. She said all through her young childhood, we called her Bambi. I think Lisa Marie did her best to give her family an experience of finding her and some kind of kind of spiritual not closure, but but healing maybe on some level through that experience. And Joanne and Moses both said afterwards that for them it had felt very, very real and still did. And that knowing that it was deer bones didn't really change that. So that's what we carried away with us that day.
Norm had a vision of what happened to Lisa. As he said, it was quite graphic. And out of respect for the family and concern that including it could taint a future criminal case, should it ever come to that, I won't be including Norm's vision in this podcast. After Lisa disappeared, Don tells me they were contacted by a number of psychics, offering to help, for a price. But he has nothing but good things to say about their experience with Norm Pratt, as do other family members I speak with. They remain friends with him after all these years. I think about Lisa's mom, Joanne, how she wasn't comfortable speaking to journalists, but was driven to talk to them to keep Lisa's story alive. How she brought Norm Pratt across the province to search for her daughter. How she marshaled a walk for Lisa year after year. And how she never gave up hope that she would one day have answers. Joanne wanted us to be outraged about what happened to Lisa. She wanted it to be unacceptable that her daughter had just vanished and that no one had been held to account. In the episodes ahead, I'll examine the cold case through the eyes of two investigators. One who has been following Lisa's story, and another who was closely involved in Vancouver's missing and murdered women investigation. If it were a middle-class white girl, there would have been a lot more concern. And only because those detectives would have been informed the thoughts that that was unusual for her. Whereas with a, with a young Indigenous woman as their victim, or, you know, a missing person... In their minds, they're thinking, oh, you know, maybe she's a drug user, maybe she's a drinker. We already know the circumstances. She's out, you know, she's out partying or, or social. And they would make all these little, finely tuned decisions about who she was and about her life that they would not even be conscious of. It would make them say, yeah, we can wait four days before we really jump on this. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime Season 1. Where is Lisa?